Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome to my Some Good Mavericks podcast. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's back to normal now after the Love in the Time of Coronavirus series, and today's guest is Rob Poynton, or Robert Poynton, as he is officially known, the author of Do Pause. Do Pause was, I believe, the biggest of the Do books in terms of sales in 2019, And it's very clear that it taps into something that we're really feeling at the moment. This conversation between Rob and I was recorded quite a long time ago now, and I'm sorry to Rob that I've delayed it. I was about to put it up when the COVID-19 struck, and then I went off on the jag of doing love in the time of coronavirus. And this has been cast aside because it didn't really sit as part of that. But Rob's work of pausing and his thoughtful intellectual approach to the way that we live could not be more relevant than it is at the moment. And so I think this is actually the absolutely perfect time to do this podcast, to get it up. And so without any further ado, here is me talking to Robert Poynton. Do you spend quite a lot of time in Oxford? I do now, yeah. So about a year ago, we bought a house there uh, after my mother died. And so I now divide my time. But home is Spain, for sure. And you're a fellow at the Said. An associate fellow. Associate fellow. Okay, <laughs> now I asked you this. It's an important distinction, yes. what, what, yeah. Well, so what does that involve? Yeah, well, my work, associate fellow is simply a, a sort of recognition that you're doing valuable work for the school but don't have a, a permanent post there. And my work there is in executive education. So I work as part of a group of people that deliver predominantly the the strategic leadership program, which is a senior program for people from all over the world. So it's leadership studies uh, for executives, people in work. So it's not diploma or academic stuff. And but your work is what I would consider to be quite left field for a conventional business school, is that right? It is, yes, yes. And there's a story behind that. So within the business school itself, um, then bear in mind that the business school in Oxford, the Said Business School, is quite a recent creation. I can't remember if it's 12 or 15 years old. The programme I work on is 37 years old, so it antedates it. And it was created actually by Sir Douglas Haig and took a very creative approach from the very beginning. And so I got involved with this particular program, which has a particular culture and way of doing things, before the business school actually came into being. So at the time it was run out of what was then Templeton College, and before that the Oxford Centre for Management Studies. And yes, it is very left field, and not just what I do on it. So we use um, music of different kinds. We have people conduct a choir. We use Shakespeare. Uh, we have them build models in Lego. Occasionally we do things like fly fishing and horse whispering. So it's a very uh, rounded, well-rounded program that's really trying to get people to reflect and think in different ways. I'm not sceptical about these things, but I'm, I'm always surprised that business schools are able to offer them because I'd imagine that most of the corporations that offer, that come you know, as clients or the, uh, uh, kind of think, well, I don't need to send my bloody staff to do some horse whispering. Um, Yes, I think, well, a couple of things. I think it's changed a lot in the last 20 years. Um, I think there is an increasing need in all kinds of organisation to, to a recognition, let's say, that, that what's currently being done or what's conventional isn't, in, isn't really working very well. 
So I think that's uh, that's changed over the sort of last 20, 20 or so years. So people are less skeptical or perhaps more desperate, one might say, on the other side. I think it's partly that. I think also uh, this is a minority pursuit within the business school at Oxford and in other business schools as well. So there are the bulk of what they do is much more recognisable and conventional. But is that a commercial imperative? I think that's sort of my question. So mm. it seems to me as if I if I were, and I'm, I'm not, but I, I imagine I was head of sort of, you know, the right department at Price Waterhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I need to send some of my staff around the world on a leadership school. I can imagine being very sceptical about these things that may be regarded as more esoteric. I can see that in the creative world, mm. um, there's more of a need for these things. I mean, so I suppose that the, the question is, you know, are most business schools not offering it simply because people are frightened of this sort of thing or just not prepared to pay for it? I think in most business schools I'm aware of, there is there is normally some kind of offering in this kind of area. And okay. there's an inherent tension between the people like myself who are involved in that kind of area and the more bog standard things within um, you know, the, the more bureaucratic, uh, more industrial, if you will, parts of the business school. So I think there's, there's, it's there. Um, an important thing to, to, to mention here is that the programs I'm involved with, it tends to be the individuals that choose. And so the individuals themselves may be running a newspaper in Africa or they may be in the diplomatic service or the civil service. So it's not just the corporate commercial world. And they themselves will tend to choose this particular program because they are drawn to and aware of the fact that they want to develop, if you will, different aspects of themselves. So there are many other programs at Oxford and elsewhere that run you know, financial negotiation programs or more specific technical things. But this program is, is, if you like, a piece of personal development, really. So what's the program called? It's called the Strategic Leadership Program. And uh, yeah, like I say, it's been around for about 37 years. Um, and draws really, the way we talk about it, is it draws on the humanities because the simple thought is that leadership uh, is about the human stuff. And so the humanities, history, arts, philosophy, culture are a very, very important source of knowledge. In fact, once I was interviewed for, for the programme and uh, we had a similar question, well, why do you use all these strange things? And I turned the question around and said, well, if for thousands of years people have been exploring what it means to be human and this is where they show up in our body of knowledge, why would you choose to ignore it? Why would you assume that you can do something uh, important, powerful, significant with a group of people and leading an organisation always involves a group of people just with a spreadsheet or with technical analysis or just looking at the numbers. Um, that seems to me to be... I amazing. think that's really interesting and actually precisely what I was talking about at The Good Life and then what you and I are discussing um, just now is, is my notion that actually leadership needs to become much more human. Mm. But I often feel that there's a tension within organisations which is very hard to break down. So this is a separate question between the kind of the scientists and the creatives mm. and, and and I wonder how, how much organizations are able to kind of to breach that or if, is that not something that you're really involved in um, I think I see it slightly differently there's certainly those different tensions and pressures and I think I've put in another group there which is the administrators who are neither one nor the other if you will um, but I think that uh, I think that there is a sense 
there seems to be a growing sense to me that the, if you will, I wouldn't call it scientific because within the sciences, I think there are some very creative areas. So I don't, I wouldn't see that as a, yes, a, a mutual exclusive wrong, thing. Wrong but, word, but, but a kind of that the analytical kind of rationally numbers-driven way of doing things is 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 missing important aspects and causing important or, or contributing, let's say, to important problems that we face. And that doing more and more of that, better and better, quicker and quicker, quicker is not really helping. So I think there's a, a nascent awareness, a growing awareness that's patchy, uneven. There are people that kick back and want more of that, and that's not helpful. So yes, those tensions are definitely there. But it feels to me like uh, it's becoming easier to have more interesting, more meaningful conversations with people in senior positions and for them to be more honest and more vulnerable. Um, but as I say, it varies enormously depending who you're talking to, the context. And, I mean, it seems that what you're doing is very much, you know, of the moment. Mm. That's, and that's not meant as a, you know, as, that it's passing, that things no. are changing. I yeah. hope so. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. But so just to, just to sort of um, to spool back a bit, because I didn't really intend to start with such a sort of thorough investigation of that aspect of your life, um, you li t tell me tell me what else you do during the year. So I, I know that you have a lot of you know great number of strings to your bows um, or your bow, and and you you know you've got Syed School and you're you're an associate fellow there, and that that's that's work, and you're here occasionally. Mm. In Spain, you do things which really sound fascinating. <laughs> yes, um, I'm very lucky, I guess. I. I, in Spain, I normally normally using the landscape, the climate, the history, the physical environment to create um, uh, all sorts of little different nooks and crannies for different purposes. Uh, broadly speaking, you can also you can say they're all some kind of retreat or learning experience of some kind, but they do vary enormously. So, for example, a number of times a year, I will run reading retreats where we are decidedly not reviewing literature. I sometimes call it the anti-book club because we don't all read the same book. We invite the people who come to choose a number of books. We get a single copy of each, and the books are there to stimulate conversation. So we spend a long weekend in a beautiful place with good food and, uh, and hopefully nice weather. And the books uh, are all on one big table, and you're only allowed one at a time. Um, but you can pick them up and put them down as you will. And then the conversations uh, stimulate, stimulated by that kind of run for hours and hours over, over meals. So the two rules that runs on are read between meals, talk uh, over meals. What sort of um, guests, if you can generalise, would come mm. to that? Um, uh, thus far, I guess it's it's people I come across, so people are invited. So it's not uh, kind of it's not that I go out looking for people. It's people I come across. Um, they could be. Uh, people who've been on the, the programmes at Oxford sometimes who express an interest in, in kind of reading and books. There are people who like reading and books, thoughtful people, people with questions. But we've had lawyers, we've had people from Silicon Valley, we've had uh, an odd sprinkling of, of academics, but not, not, uh, it's, it's not, perhaps not their particular way of doing things. Uh, quite a few younger people as well. So it's quite a diverse, eclectic bunch. Um, um, public affairs uh, people from a big media company in Berlin. That was another person who comes. So, so do you read? Some, do you read novels or um, novels? Tends not to be. There's, it's very very open, Charlie. So there's. Uh, we say to people, novels. If you choose novels, it has a different kind of conversation because it's, there's not much time to read. You know, a whole novel, uh, and you might say, well, you don't need to read it all, and that's true. But we've found it more effective, mostly non-fiction. But it varies enormously. It can everything be from sometimes from children's stories through philosophy science, 
business books, uh, classic works of literature, you know, um, that people dip into, whether it's Plato or Walt Whitman. So it's a very eclectic thing. And it's really interesting. I mean, I'm just trying to encourage people who um, I talk to and who work with me to to read business books, if they like, or, mm. or, or self-help books or whatever you want to call them. But, but to make sure that they continue to read novels. Because I think, I think you know, fundamentally on a human level, novels are way, way, way more powerful than, than non-fiction. In my, that's my... I would, I would agree with that. that as I say, the, what's interesting about this is the, the choice of the books is deliberately not steered or controlled. And that began because the very first group I invited, they didn't seem to be paying much attention. They were due to be there in a few weeks and they hadn't really... Uh, booked any flights or anything like that and so uh, and also I had a quandary about what to do about the books and, and I realized uh, that this was a way of solving that was to ask them to choose the books and then only afterwards did I realize and this is often the way things work for me that there was there was a uh, great wisdom in that um, I wish I could claim that I thought of this before but what happened was it did get them thinking but it more important than that made them all responsible for the books and so what that does is it it changes their frame of mind when they come from being a co-creator of the event, a participant in having chosen the literature, and in a very practical way means they can't sit around and whinge and go, well, I don't like these books, because they were partly responsible for choosing It's them. dramatically, dramatically and demonstrably the right way to manage people. Mm. I developed a similar tactic on my farm when the guys would get a, a, a Land Rover or a Jeep or whatever, and for years they would um, they go, oh, this freaking car you bought me is a pile of shit and you know or, and then I said okay right okay from now on someone gets to choose their own vehicle great and the complaints literally just completely yeah. evaporated they've essentially got exactly the same thing but they couldn't come to me saying it's a piece of shit because yeah. they were the one who'd gone to the garage and and chosen and it. chosen it yeah and I think there's another thing that happened here and I again I wish, would love to claim with foresight that I knew this was coming but I think hindsight is sometimes a great a great tool as well to make sense of what you've done so that you can then learn from it and move forward. And what I realized that was by inviting them to, to, join, you cha to, to join in choosing the books, one had changed that dynamic, uh, but one had also changed the sort of underlying model, which is that somebody, an expert, in this case probably would have been me, uh, has chosen these books, ergo they're good, as opposed to these books are here for a purpose, which is you know, whatever purpose you've chosen them for, and actually we're the main event, not the books. And so the conversation, the connection. The books over the weekend do sort of become, some of them become like characters at the dinner table as different people read them and have different perspectives on them. Um, but uh, it's very uh, deliberately kind of random. You That's know. also a brilliant way of people building relationships yeah. between each other is sort of sparring in exactly. a gentle, or, uh, you know, even yeah. in a sort of repetitive way of... of readings of things yeah. so you, you do that there That's and you one, do yeah. you do lots of other courses yeah there's there other well. things as well so there's one which is much more playful um which is called the creative creative tapas experience um and it's not about food we provide the food so it's not about making food it's it came from a comment i've lived in spain for many years and it would amuse me when friends in london would say oh we went to a tapas restaurant last night now that's a bit like saying we went to the king's arms on a pub crawl uh, because in Spain, by definition, tapas is processional. You go from one place to another, you have a series of things. You do not sit at a table and have food. That's not tapas, that's something else. Um, and so uh, that was kind of the, that was where the name came from. And the idea came from an, an inquiry of mine, a question I, I'd been very interested in, is what happens when you make, when you blur the line between the audience and the creators, if you will, the makers of things and the people observing the making. And so the creative tapas experience, which we've done a couple of times now, 
is where you invite a whole bunch of people, about 50 or 60, and you really just supply them with all sorts of different materials. So everything from paper and stationery through to digital equipment, through to building materials, old car tires, chicken wire, all sorts of things. And you just invite them very, very gently to make things if they will. And uh, it's made very clear there's no obligation to make. And when we did the first one, somebody said to me, what happens if nobody makes anything? And I said, well, that'd be fascinating because that wouldn't be to break the rule. And then I said very quickly, but have you seen who's coming? The chances that that group of people would not make anything was close to zero. And so what you just set them free in a beautiful place um, and fuel them appropriately. Um, but we don't allocate teams, we don't do tasks. There's just one timeline, which is uh, if you want to have something to show on the Saturday evening, which is when the tapas trail of the creations happens, you need to tell me what, what you need by six o'clock, which in Spain is just after lunch. Um, uh, and what that means, you don't need to tell me what it is, but you need to tell me we need to be here, we want it to be dusk, we need you know, power or whatever it is. And then between six and nine, I kind of weave all that together. And at nine o'clock, I set off like the Pied Piper with everybody following around me. And people show and do their things. And there's one other constraint is that if it takes a period of time, so a sculpture, for example, doesn't take a period of time, you can just look at it. But if it's a play or a film or a football tournament, and we had a football tournament. One of the proudest moments on this event was uh, a little boy, Manuel, came up to me, a seven-year-old, and he, he asked me if he could have more than seven minutes. And this event actually works really, really well with kids. The kids, in a way, are the most vital component because they make the adults into kids as well. So anyway, the little boy comes to me and asks me if he can have more than seven minutes. And I had to decide, do I let him or not? And I decided that I wouldn't because actually the constraint is part of the creativity and part of inviting the children in is to say well you're like everyone else so the rules are the same for you as well and i think it was the right decision because we had a football tournament we had two semi-finals played simultaneously with live commentary one of which ended up 4-2 and a final which was 1-0 and the presentation of the trophy which had also been made in seven minutes and so it proved to be possible. So, um, and what is amazing is what people can do. You just provide these small amounts of constraint um, and lots of materials as stimulus. And, and the last one we had, I think, seven different movies were made, each of them shorter than seven minutes, most of them about two, as, and about 30 or 40 other creations. And people similar. find this incredibly liberating, I imagine. They do. Um, uh, they do. They find it absolutely, uh, absolutely extraordinary. Um, I think when they first get there, they also find it slightly terrifying because they're used to having much more structure and being instructed and put, you're in the purple team and, you know, he's your captain and we don't give them any of that, which is why the gentleness is very important. Is if you don't want to make anything, if you want to lie on the lawn, it's absolutely fine. So we take away all of that. And the, the, twi the two times we've done it before, there is a moment of not of not just um, liberation, but a complete exhilaration. And it, and it seems to happen when, at some point during the day, uh, they suddenly look up, they're involved in, in making something with somebody. Because there is one other rule, which is no solo creations. So you can have solo performances, but no solo creations. So it's intrinsically collaborative. And uh, there's a point where they sort of look up from whatever they're involved in, and realize they're part of something bigger. And the last time we did this was when one of my sons is involved in a team that were making some kind of sculpture that was gonna be suspended above the patio of the big house where we were. And they looked up to see Matteo on the roof. And I did, I looked up and saw Matteo on the roof and I thought two things. Uh, one was about, oh my God, have we got insurance? And the other was, what are the family gonna say? Because this is my wife's family's place. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, we just let it roll. And, and literally, heads lifted and the mood just sort of 
lifted to the sky as well and everybody went, oh my god because they realized that even though they were working on their they must be making you know plasticine sculptures or something but that what was going up on the roof they were part of that too because this isn't competitive this is a whole sort of nested experience and so there's a tremendous euphoria comes with with feeling how easily you can be connected to that wellspring of creativity i also think that the relationships often happen in the spaces in between the you know, sit so yeah. around the table and all, and, and just Absolutely. chatting. You know, sitting around having a drink. I mean, that's. I think of these kind. When I've been to these kind of type of events that last for you know more than just a day, the actual making or doing or listening is relatively inconsequential compared to the, you know, the the bit where you're sitting down with someone and having a glass of wine or or eating some food. And that's often Absolutely. you know that's it's kind of almost like a model of the sort of you know this is the old fashioned house party where. 20 people who don't know each other are brought together by a host and by the end of the weekend great friendships are forged. I think that's right. I think uh, you know, the, the, one of my colleagues at Oxford is fond of saying the spaces are as important as the sessions. And I agree with you. I think in many ways the activities, whatever they are, are kind of pretext. And increasingly I've been wondering about if, if it's a case that most of the things we think kind of aid connection and social social life actually sort of get in the way that actually you just need these small uh, small little things to pull people together and then let them free and allow them this space and let them rub up against each other and they will kind of as a matter of course you know be incredibly generative and positive and kind and creative and all these things mm. you so you do obviously work at business school but you and, and you do your courses at home and you run your farm but you also do um training and talking and it, do, on a yeah. sort of you know I suppose freelance is the right basis yeah. you do quite yeah, a lot I of that work, don't I you? work for myself yeah so that can you know I have a at the moment I have to decide whether to go to Turkey and give a talk at a big HR conference about about um, pausing and time the latest sort of body of work um, I you know occasionally I'll go out to Silicon Valley and do stuff there. A lot of what the work I do is based on uh, improv theatre. So I got very interested in improv theatre as a sort of vehicle for exploring in a full embodied way, rather than just a sort of intellectual abstract way, how do we cope with change and uncertainty in business? So my interest is not theatrical, but it's drawing on a theatrical discipline. So I do a lot of work with that at conferences and events and yeah, programmes and workshops. Um, sometimes I have a, I have kind of individual companies that I work with over time. So I work with a family, family-owned Spanish cosmetics business for about three years, which was really interesting. Um, and uh, they, to my, uh, uh, to my delight, but to my great surprise, invited me to help them with their kind of leadership team, uh, which is all family members. So I kind of got to sit and be a the facilitator or fly on the wall amongst a group of people who are both kind of intimately related and running a company, which is fascinating. Um, and, and has a lot of this work come from your two do, pub, do books that you've published, Improvise um, and Pause? I mean, have they become, I suppose, kind of um, anchors or, or catalysts to this sort of work? Definitely. I think it's quite hard to say where work comes from. It's all a bit oblique. Um, but I, I suppose the way I think of it is, 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 is sort of like you tend the web, your own personal web of connections and relationships. And, uh, and when you have a marker like a book uh, which people write about or comment upon or buy and read or get back to you about, then that's a sort of significant node in that web. You know? and, uh, and it has a certain kind of feel uh, about it. So it, it, it probably does another job, which is it probably puts off people that I wouldn't want to work with. If you see what I mean, so if somebody's just a, a very conventional corporate type and hasn't got more 
more interesting questions and they just want to sort of how do we you know how do we sell more and they read my work they're probably not going to get in touch with me so it, it does that role too I think um, and I think for me the other part of the books is being asked really good questions which is sort of what Miranda does when you're writing uh, and having to clarify through writing what you think then makes you much clearer. Oh, it's fascinating, in, in, isn't it? I mean, you can have a thought in your head for months, <laughs> which, is, which seems really wise, and, and, uh, and then try and express it to someone and realise it's complete nonsense. Yeah, yeah. So interesting, it that. Is, yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of discovery. I mean, uh, everybody writes in different ways, but for me, the process of writing is a process of discovering or uncovering, um, and it works best when I'm sort of surprised by what seems to have appeared. And that's the sensation I have. I don't have the sensation that, that I have done this. I've kind of thrashed around and then this stuff kind of comes through me, if you see what I mean. And then I look at it and go, oh gosh. And so I feel I learn a lot through the process of, of writing itself, which then um, means, you, you know, not only does that go into the work that is the book, but it goes into your wider body of work and it goes into you. And you begin to learn what works and what doesn't exactly, work. Exactly, yeah. Sort of. I yeah. mean, it seems to me that you're, you're um, you know, you're, you're, you're someone who's very, um, you clearly, you know, lead a very interesting and engaged and, and exciting life. Um, were you always, as a, as a child, were you someone who was just a little bit to the left of the centre? Um. Well, the way I've come to understand it is that I was always in simultaneously in more than one camp. So I was always betwixt and between. So when I was small, uh, I was clever and I was good at sport. And um, you kind of weren't expected to be both of those. And, and so I didn't fit in with either. And that continued kind of for a while, you know. Um, and so I've always been... Uh, not so much on the edge of one or to, away from the centre of one group, but sort of mashing up different groups. And if you look at the way my work's progressed into my life, you know, so when I worked in advertising, which I did initially, uh, I was what's called an account planner or a strategic planner, which is not a business person, but looks at the numbers, and is not a creative person, but works with the creative people. So again, between there. And then I find myself... Uh, uh, living across two cultures and connecting with a family. The advertising was your first job. Advertising was my first job. So yeah. you, so you went, you went to school in in, in Wiltshire. In Wiltshire. Yeah. And then university. Oxford. Okay. Yeah. And then you went to advertising. To yeah. advertising straight yeah. to advertising. Although was that kind of on the? Um, was that kind of one of those sort of? Was it called the gravy train kind of thing? Where, <laughs> the milk. You know, the milk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The gravy. But train. it was a kind of gravy Christ, train. Yeah, yeah. I got it wrong there. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it was. So, uh, so again, in, even at university, I studied psychology and philosophy and didn't fit into either camp. You know, so the philosophers mostly did PPE and, and politics and economics and, and the psychologists just did psychology and I didn't fit there either. I went into advertising because I thought it'd be fun. I've always wanted to enjoy my work or to put it the other way around, I'm rubbish at doing things I don't enjoy. I and mean, you could really have got haven't. any job pretty much you wanted in those days. How old are you yeah. now? Yeah, 50, nearly 56. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. Exactly the same age. Yeah, so exactly. You could walk out of that university at that time and get a job in pretty much any industry and get a very well-paid job in the city at the time, which was sort of booming and thriving. And none of that ever held any allure for me um, because I just, I just, it's sort of, I just glaze over. It's just not of any interest. It's what I would call kind of... Um, deathly work to me personally you know it may not be to other people but to me it's kind of uh, deathly and not alive and so I, I kind of went into advertising thinking that'd be fun and in many ways it was and then got really interested in in the difference again between how where do ideas come from and how do people actually work together to create a rich source of ideas versus what we say about 
what we do to create those ideas. So this was a period when I worked in advertising where brands were being put on balance sheets for the first time and everybody talked about them as assets and, you know, and, and the agency would use the language of, of um, this is the you know, answers to problems and this is the right solution. And I kind of went, no, but that was Graham in the lift, a bit drunk, talking to Steve about making a joke about a dog. You know, <laughs> I kind of go, this is not how it works. So I got really, really interested in that. And I think one of my other interests lifelong has been, it's going to sound a bit weird, but is kind of um, laziness, really, uh, in, in the sense of, uh, you know, Bertrand Russell, I haven't read it actually, but in Praise of Idleness, he wrote that a long time ago. And what I mean by that is that it seems to me that an awful lot of our conscious deliberate effort is not only um, unproductive or unhelpful, but sort of gets us into the messes we get into. And and so I've always kind of thought, well, how can we do things more lightly, more gracefully, more easily, more with more kind of wit and charm and delight and and ease? And that, well, the education that, you know, system definitely tries to impose a kind of rigorous work ethic on us, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah. so I definitely, I can, I work incredibly hard and I really struggle to kind of, to, to do that sort of stuff you're talking. And I, I've never been able to actually analyse why I work so hard, but I'm definitely fundamentally trying to prove something to people. Yes. Who, who I'm trying to prove it to, I don't really know. That's yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, people who know me would say, well, you work incredibly hard as well. And I do. I'm not absolutely not... Uh, against hard work no, as no, but such, not. but it's the kind of way we work, I think. That's, That's what I mean. that Sorry. issue. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think that, um, so for example, I was talking about this with somebody last week about how it seems to me that a vast amount of what we do, its real effect, even if it's not our intention, is simply about alleviating anxiety. So we go through all sorts of efforts, uh, certainly in organisations, to alleviate anxiety. Um, and it doesn't really work, and, it, and it's terribly stressful and I difficult. I don't really understand what you mean. Well, what I mean by is, um, uh, it, it's hard to explain without getting into a lot of detail, but for example, um, uh, if a huge amount of corporate planning, the plans that are produced are never used for anything. They don't actually correspond to what happens, and yet people sweat blood to produce them, and consultants are hired, and tons of money is spent. But they don't actually make a difference. They might be used to post-rationalise a decision that's already been made. There might be a change of boss, and then they get completely ignored, and then a whole new set of studies and stuff are commissioned. And so, um, some of that's necessary. But you know, I often look to the military as examples, and and they say that you know that. that Colonel Colditz at West Point, he said that um, plans are proof that planning has been done. So there's some merit in having a plan that makes people feel a bit less anxious. But the idea that we can kind of plan and organise and anticipate everything that's going to happen, and if we fail to do that, we need to do all that harder, is to kind of like sort of put good effort after bad. And one of the things that got me fascinated by improvisers on the stage when I first started working with improvisation is they have this capacity to seemingly effortlessly generate, uh, in their case, stories and ideas and scenes, but that's just a metaphor for whatever you're wanting to make. And when you get into it, it's not effortless. They're making a particular kind of effort, though. They're working with some very simple ideas, which is, and they're, and they're basically working with their attention, what they pay attention to. They're thinking very hard as well, presumably. Uh, well, it depends what you mean by thinking. They're not cogitating hard. So they're not using their intellectual sense, and, and um, they're not, they, I mean, in professional improvisers may be as smart or, or as intellectual as anyone else, but that's not the skill that 
characterizes them. But they are thinking very hard if by thinking you mean using all, the, all of their intelligences, their bodily intelligence, their emotional intelligence, their experience, their ju judgment, but not in an analytical way. So they're sensing and responding what's going on and able to do that with extraordinary skill uh, and actually, so are all of we, but we sometimes don't realize it and we don't value it because our education system, as you were saying earlier, has taught us to value other things. Mm -hmm. So this mm -hmm. conversation is an improvised, responsive com conversation mm -hmm. as we listen to each other and ideas come to us. And all human conversation is like that. And it's a great joy. Uh, so all of us can improvise, but we often don't value it and we don't value that capacity that, that we have. And we, it seems to me we spend a lot of our time trying to be or to be something else. Well, know? I actually think proper conversation is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, joy of human contact. Yes, yes, I um, agree. And, and although no one really likes talking about themselves, <laughs> but, but you know, people's stories are quite interesting. Yeah. So you, so you had, you had this, you've had all these sort of thoughts, which are actually rooted really in. I mean, you're really fundamentally an intellectual, aren't you? I'm beginning to think I am, yes. That's been said to me quite a lot recently. Um, Has it? Yeah, it's, it's, um, I suppose when, w why is that news to me? Well, I, I suppose I just have the association of intellectuals with you know, people surrounded by books writing academic papers. But, but yeah, if by intellectual, interested in ideas Cultured. and, 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 uh, and thinking, then, then yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, I think someone who, you know, who's, I think you need to be educated to be intellectual. I think right. you need to be cultured and I think you need to be open to ideas and to having ideas. That's mm. kind of what I mean. Mm. But, but then your work superficially appears incredibly playful. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think that play... I was struck years ago, I read uh, that dolphins, the only way marine biologists can sensibly describe what they do 95% of the time is play. Um, I don't know if that's true, but that was something I read. And, and so I think that in the human realm, I think play and playfulness is, is kind of fantastically important to actually unlock ideas. You know, I think, uh, and I think we could do with being a bit more like dolphins because I think playfulness enables you to uh, think about how it might be otherwise. So games and play, we normally don't know the result before we start. If you do, it's probably a pretty dull game, right? So it seems to me that being able to be playful is a way of picking things up and trying them out. And what about this? And what about that? And have you tried uh, this way? And if it were blue, how would it look? And, and so there's an openness intrinsic in playfulness that I think is, to me, intimately related to, to curiosity and the exploration of new ideas. So forgive me if this question is really boring. When I was a child, when you were a child, play involved going outside maybe if we were lucky enough to live in the countryside or playing in the house and playing maybe with your siblings or your friends and making up worlds. Where do you, where do you think the internet is taking kids? I mean, is, that, is it a, you know, clearly there are a master degree and, and playing um, some violent video game is, is not a good thing. But do you think that, that it is a, it is a, it's, it's been good for creativity in young people or do you think it's been bad? Creative play. Um, if I had to give a one-word answer, I'd, I'd, I'd say I don't think it's been good. I don't think it's been good. Uh, it, I'm sure it's been good in some smaller ways, but it seems to me that um, part of being 
playful is 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 to have sort of direct contact with with things in all your senses in all your being you know that anything that's mediated or presented through something made by somebody else is already uh, of a different nature you know now I'll own up to a huge bias and maybe because my background was in the countryside and we did play outdoors I spent very little time indoors when I was when I was small um, so my, I just sort of have a physical aversion to sitting in front of a screen longer than I have to. So, so I'm massively kind of biased, and my answer. I I'm am sure too, and so I think you know. That, but yeah. I think it's very easy for you and I to sit around the sun like complete old farts. Yeah, for sure. So I think yeah. that's why I say I think that, you know the question is slightly tedious because we could easily give a, a boring answer. And clearly, you know, there are, there are amazing things. Clearly, Absolutely. millions of amazing no, things for no creating about about the internet. Yeah. But I do I do feel that for me, some of the greatest joy I ever had as a child was playing makeup. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. If I if I take a if I take take a step away from the immediate association with video games, uh, and actually my sons who uh, all play video games, or two of the three of them anyway, quite a lot, uh, you know, are very good with me by saying, no, no, you don't understand. This is a whole narrative world, and and they'll talk about it, you know, and 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 so I kind of get that there's things I don't get. But if I take a step back away from precisely from video games and think about, well, the internet and technology allows me to spend a morning sitting on a mountain in Spain, uh, uh, bouncing ideas off, off somebody in, in Norway and then talking to somebody in Cambridge and then fiddling around and going for a walk in the, mountains, in the mountains and cogitating on that so that in the afternoon when I talk to somebody in California, you know, I've, so in that sense, it's helping me be creative. Of course, no, you know. no, of course it is. I mean, I understand that. I mean, yeah. I, I think my question was more... You know, how, how much do you worry? I mean, speaking to you, one of the things that has occurred to me, which may or may not be correct, is that my childhood lived and played in imagination may have had much more of a profound effect on my ability to be creative now because my entire skill now is, is, is making up things and, you know, creating things from nothing. That's really all, you know, and getting along with people. So I'm thinking, God, you know, I'd never really considered that there might be a connection. And I don't want to talk about me, but there might be a connection between the hours and hours and hours that my brother and sister and friends played outside in Make the Believe World and the fact that I have a, a definitely a strong ability to kind of say, well, let's just do a project and make up something yeah. like the Good Life Experience, for example. Yeah. And, and so I'm thinking, you know, if that were the case, that's this is a thesis that was developed about four minutes ago. <laughs> yes. If that's the case, then it is very damaging if people are simply sitting at computers all the time. I think that's right. And I, I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it just now. And actually, it's a pretty reasonable thesis in my case, you know, inventing whole worlds. And I don't, I've never quite understood the paralysis or the fear that seems to kind of creep in. And sometimes when people go, oh, we could do this. And they go, oh, but we couldn't because. And they're very quick to come up with all sorts of reasons why it won't work. And I'm kind of like, well, why don't we just do it? And then we'll find out. I quite know? agree. And, and actually, I, I wonder mean, if that's yeah. where that came my, from. My, so I, I have a theory, which I'm often repeating at the moment, which is that in terms of creating businesses or projects, that there's no such thing as a good or a bad idea. Mm. Um, clearly, some ideas are bad, like let's go and murder people. But, but on yeah. the whole, you know, it's how you execute that idea. Yeah. So I try to encourage in my um, businesses, and I think it may irritate some people, positive thought. I can't bear people saying, why can't we? Yeah. I, I want them to say we can. And I see, I can understand it's the wrong person or in the wrong mood, that can be quite oppressive. Yes. But I do think I do think you have to take that, that approach. Well, it's fascinating what you say, because years ago, I, kind of coming out of the improv world, I came up with a, a similar twist, which is, I say, there's no such thing as a bad idea yet. And so, and that comes from the thought that no idea is born perfect, that ideas all require an evolution, and, a, and that's where the playfulness comes in. And so, good, bad, or indifferent, any idea can evolve if you let it. But if you start to judge it and stop it, 
right then and there, you know, yeah, yeah, that ain't gonna work. Yes. So uh, it's much more interesting to get going. Yes. Than than to worry about which way you're going. So we yeah. when we did the good life experience, you know, we, when we started, we wanted to do a festival, and we just decided to do it, and we launched it in sort of July and did one in September. And actually, twelve hundred people came, and it, it was it was great. But had we sat around for six months, sort of looking at you know yeah. whether it would work or not, we probably would never have done it. No. So mm-hmm. it is that acting on it. So just listen before we wind up. I just like to, I'd like I'd like to just ask you a little bit about your relationship with walking. Ah. Because I know that's something that you're interested oh, yes. in, and um, and so and, and you've met you you know just now just in a cursory way, talked about walking. Tell me tell me what what you believe walking to do or to be for you um ooh, well walking is so much um so uh walking is thinking uh the, the thinking to me doesn't just happen in the sort of the brain uh it, that we're much more integrated in that and so move your body move your mind that's fundamental and i think that there's something about the rhythm of walking so you know if you're running has different virtues, but it has a different rhythm, clearly. So walking, to me, is, is, is about thinking. It helps me think. Um, where I live, walking is a way of knowing the landscape. And so until you have walked it, it's not inside of you in quite the same way. So it's a way of um, becoming intimate with a landscape. And so where, where I live and I look out the window at every single piece uh, of you know, every single peak at least that I can see from the windows I have been to the top of. And so that gives me a different relationship with, with the landscape. Um, and I was very sporty as a kid, but I, kind of the sports I played, they happen not to do in the country where I live. So, um, so rugby and cricket, you know, not very strong yes. in Spain and also not at this, you know, my age now, probably uh, not, not the ideal thing. So for, not rugby for sure. No, so, so, and I've never been a gym person or, or actually a runner or a cyclist. So for me, just the idea of, 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 I'm a big fan of really gentle exercise, you know, and so walking plays that role too. Uh, and when I get stuck, it's a way of getting unstuck. So the first book, Do Improvise, I, I joke about, I should have dedicated it to our dog because you're sitting there kind of trying that the words won't come. And um, and I would know that a walk would help. Um, but I still would, even though I know that, I'd still sort of say, oh, yeah, but I'll try a bit harder. And that's what I mean about the kind of the trying hard thing. You know, it's like, come on, Rob, you know it's not going to work to try harder. And the fact that Cosmo, our dog, was sitting there, black Labrador, always gagging for a walk, and he'd get me out. And by the time I'd gone a mile, I'd probably go, oh, I know. Something would come. Yes, know. yes. Um, so so, interesting. so it's, it's, yes. it's many things, and I couldn't, I couldn't do without it. No, I mean, I, 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 I'm going to sort of end this now, but I'm, I'm, I run, and I think there's something quite fundamentally different between running and walking. Mm. But, but they both have, I think, for the people who do them. I love walking, but I mean, I, I, running is what frees my mind. Right. But I, um, but I, I really, it, it, it's, it's what you're saying is exactly what happens to me. I mean, it's transformative. Yes. And yes, yes I'm still thinking, well, I'll just do another 200 words or eight emails or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, Rob. That yeah. was absolutely Pleasure. amazing. And that's it. Thank you very much to Rob. That was brilliant. Thank you very much to you for joining me. Thank you very much to my friend Jim Friend for editing this. And I will see you soon. Thanks. Bye.